Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Purpose Podcast. My name is Haas Rauscher. The goal of this podcast is to help men find and fulfill their purpose, going to help them be good, strong leaders, good, strong men, good male role models in their communities. I'm going to do that by having conversations, going to invite guests on. I'm going to ask our guests, what is your purpose? What do you think your purpose ought to be? How did you find that purpose? And what do you do every single day? How do you get up, get after it, and go and fulfill that purpose? Today is going to be the second episode of the Purpose Book Club uh, on Blood Meridian. We are going over Blood Meridian. Hopefully you all are reading it with me, Um, all four of you that are here. Um, (laughs) No, I know there's more than that. Um, Hopefully you're all reading it with me, uh, reading along with me. I'm going to do my very best to not uh, give too many spoilers uh, uh, out about the next section uh, as I go along with this stuff. So... um, Hopefully you're all reading it with me. Hopefully you've gotten to the portion uh, where he's ended up in jail. Um, I think it was around chapter seven or so uh, that he ends up in jail. I think it's one to seven that uh, is the very uh, very first section of this book. This this sorry this uh, this book is cut into three different sections from the start of the book to the kid ending up in jail and then other things that you'll find out later uh divide the book into sections i, I may have gone into a little bit more detail uh last week but i don't want to do any major spoilers so um this first part this first chapter i thought was a pretty exciting chapter it really kind of wrote me into the book uh there was a lot of action in this first part which is not really the the mo of the book throughout the rest of the book i don't mean to tear you down but it gets kind of boring in the middle a little bit um but this first part had a lot of action and uh mccarthy from what i've heard and what i've read uh mccarthy is really into foreshadowing so um giving kind of an insight into what's going to happen later in the book and a lot of this action um a lot of the reason that you're seeing so much action in this first section is I think he's preloading with a lot of foreshadowing and letting you know um, that, hey, this first three chapters or so, uh, it ain't nothing compared to what you've got coming in the rest of the book. And this is what the rest of the book is going to look like just in a very small portion in this first section. So um, I really like it. Uh, The first section was pretty cool i'm not going to go over um the first page we kind of talked about that the the significance of him being born during the leonids um we got into that this book has a lot of astrology in it from what i've heard that you know there's a lot of uh there's a lot of astrology Uh, i guess mccarthy kind of tied in deep to astrology i don't really understand that and when i say astrology i'm talking about you know um the girls you know he i'm an asparagus and a leotard and all that stuff i don't i don't get it um nobody really gets it it's kind of a meme nowadays uh of course anything that is good or has any purpose uh modern culture just runs it into the ground and ruins it uh so i don't really place much significance on the astrology in this book other than the fact that it's really really cool that mccarthy went through so much effort to tie this whole book in uh with astrology in the world and other different books uh, it, it's kind of cool. So if you're interested in it, look at it. Uh, Notes on Blood Meridian by John Sepich, 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 whatever, however you say his name. Um, if you're really interested in that, get that. And there's a part in there called Tarot and Divination, I think, uh, where he goes through all of that stuff. Uh, there's some fortune telling cards that get pulled out later in the book that I, again, have 
not much interest in other than the fact of what can it tell me that applies to my life and really none of the astrology and the fortune telling and all that stuff uh really does me any good there um and i don't think uh, the type of audience that I'm going to have that's reading this book, I don't think it'll do you any good either. Uh, it's it's kind of it seems to me to be kind of a literary nerd type thing uh, where people want to get really into it. So if you want to get really into it, I highly suggest that you go look into the into the astrology of the book and how Cormac McCarthy uh, ties everything in. It's actually it's actually really cool. Um, I, but I I just I say it's really cool. It's uh it's really complicated, and you can tell there was a lot of effort put into it. I just don't care. Um, that may not be right of me, but so um, first of all, the uh the kid gets um, let's see, he finds himself pretty much right at the beginning of the book. He finds himself uh going into um yeah there it is let's see could have been watching oh yeah yep right here uh he's in Nacogdoches and he goes into a tent revival um for yeah a tent revival uh there's a reverend in there putting on one of these big revivals you've you've seen them where they pay reverends to to come into these little towns and uh they put on a really big show and everybody in the town shows up uh that's what this kind of is and he finds himself there and uh in the middle of the revival uh one of the most i mean one of if not the most important character in the book the judge walks in uh, the, the judge, uh, this is just the foreshadowing of, of how big of a dick the judge is and how, uh, much of a menace he is, how much he just really, uh, wants to cause chaos, how much he feeds on chaos. He comes in and addresses the, uh, the congregation as I guess you could call them and tells them a whole bunch of lies, uh, about <laughs> the reverend that's up there and, uh, preaching. So he says, lady and ladies and gentlemen, I feel it is my duty to inform you that the man holding this revival is an imposter. He holds no papers of divinity from any institution recognized or, Im or improvised. He is altogether devoid of the late of the least qualification to the office he has usurped. And he has only, committed to memory a few passages from the good book for the purpose of lending to his fraudulent sermons some faint flavor of the piety he despises. In truth, the gentleman standing here before you, posing as a minister of the Lord, is not only totally illiterate, but is also wanted uh, by law in the states of Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Arkansas. Um, he goes in, so... Uh, yeah, it says that he violated a girl uh, of 11 years old. Let's see. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just Oh, he has uh, sex with a goat, apparently, which is uh, really funny. He just says some, some really messed up shit about this reverend, uh, and everybody's just beside themselves. You know, they, they now hate this man, and they run and chase him out of town. And then later, uh, he sees the judge... Um, in the bar and he says uh how did you come to have the goods and no account goods where was fort smith um where did you know him to know all that stuff on him you mean the reverend green yes sir i reckon you was in fort smith before you come out here i was never in fort smith in my life doubt that he was they looked at one another where was it that you run up on him 
I never laid eyes on that man before today. Never even heard of him. He raised his glass and drank. <laughs> so he's just he's just giving this reverend shit. Um, I mean, he's an asshole. That's <laughs> that's the whole thing on the judge. Um, I thought it was really funny. One thing that you'll notice, um, and again, there's no point in the book. Like at no point this circles back around, other than the fact that the judge is just an ass, uh, which is funny. Uh, you'll notice at this point in the book when they've started talking to each other, um, I have in big letters here, why no quotes, question mark, question mark, question mark. Uh, Cormac McCarthy doesn't use quotes, which is awful. Um, it sucks. <laughs> so um, I went through with a pencil and every time I read a quote, I put quotations on it because I couldn't handle it. Uh, I don't know why he does this. I have no clue. It's probably some sign of literary genius. Uh, I don't know. Um, I really don't. It, why he doesn't have quotes. He also a lot of times doesn't like annotate who is saying what. You have to figure that out from the context. So uh, be prepared for that if you haven't read it yet. If you have read it, I highly recommend going back and putting quotes in there. And if you don't know who is saying what, uh, next to it, write uh, who is saying what. Uh, I had to figure that out really quick, and luckily I was able to get a, get the hang of it uh, towards the middle of the book, and uh, it, it was okay after that. Uh, it wasn't that bad. Um, next, it gets you into uh, He Meets Toadvine, which is semi-sort of significant. I don't want to just go over uh, the whole book. Let's see. Um, enter Toadvine. So, um, let's see, uh, on page 18 and 19, uh, really starts with the uncomfortableness of the book. Um, I told you in the introduction that this book is going to make you incredibly uncomfortable and he wastes no time doing that. Uh, 18 and 19 is, uh, I guess really more 19 and 20, 18, 19 and 20. Um, he runs into this guy on the planes, uh, this just old hermit that is living on the plains with nobody else um, runs into him and it's about to come a storm and the kid needs a place to water his mule so the hermit lets him and it immediately again drags you into uh, the discomfort and it takes you it, it reminds you that after all of this good time and um, stuff with the judge and the fight with Toadvine it reminds you of the times that we're talking about and the extreme level of hatred and uh, evil, I guess, in, in people's hearts. And it really creates what I thought was interesting about this. And the only reason I'm bringing it up is because I really thought it was interesting. Is that this whole book uh, really, it, it brings out, um, not the worst in you, but it will make somebody to be the most horrible person in the world. And then somehow... Uh, forces you to go, oh, well, they actually had a good point there. Uh, it does that all throughout the book. It's kind of a theme in the book of this dichotomy of people um, back in the day, and we're talking Indians, Mexicans, white people, anybody in this book, uh, it does this. It, it'll show you one way that they are truly just an awful person, just not even a person worth, uh, not even a person deserving of life on the earth. <laughs> and then 
two pages later, you'll go, well, damn, uh, he had a good point or you'll start rooting for him. And that's what this book really does well is, uh, really start to make you think of where your, not where your priorities lie, but, um, make you think about the dichotomy between good and evil inside one single person, I think is, is what I'm, what I'm struggling with because the judge, uh, the judge is a badass. Um, even though he's like the worst person on the face of the earth, um, he's also a badass. Uh, Toadvine, you really start to feel for Toadvine, even though he's over there scalping innocent Mexicans uh, in Mexico. Uh, the kid, the kid has a taste for mindless violence. We got told this on page one. He proves it over and over again. Yet you find yourself just rooting for the kid over and over and over again. Um, it's hard. It's hard because, uh, you know, in 2023 or whatever, uh, we can tell jokes, we can do all these things. Um, but the true level of hatred that we're talking about, uh, in this book, I don't know that any of us, especially as zoomers have ever really experienced. And it's, I don't want to get political, but it's part of the reason that, uh, some of the left's arguments are just so ridiculous is because they act like those levels of hatred still exist and, and they don't. Um, but this book forces you to confront that. Uh, so for example, this, uh, this hermit, he gets in with, I'm just going to quote, uh, what the hermit said and then kind of tell you where I was like, damn, he has a good point. Um, the, the, the hatred in this hermit's heart, it's, it's honestly, uh, hard to read, but I think it's important to, uh, give you an idea of the way it, not only it made me feel, but the way it's going to make you feel. Um, so he's asking him, he says, how long you been out here out where, uh, the kid was sitting on his blanket roll, um, from the fire, uh, across the fire from the old man. He says here, he said in this place, the old man didn't answer. He turned his head suddenly aside and seized his nose between his thumb and forefinger and blew two strings of snot onto the floor and wiped his fingers on the seam of his jeans. He's a heathen. He's, well, a heathen means something different in here. Um, he's uncivilized. I come from Mississippi. I was a slaver. Don't care to tell it. Made good money. Never did get caught. Just got sick of it. Sick of niggers. Wait till I show you something. He turned and rummaged among the hides and handed through the flames a small dark thing. The kid turned it in his hand. Some man's heart dried and blackened. He passed it back and the old man cradled it in his palm as if he'd weigh it. They is four things that can destroy the earth, he said. Women, whiskey, money, and niggers. They sat in silence. The wind moaned in the section of stovepipe that was run through the roof above them to quit the place of smoke. After a while, the old man put the heart away. That thing costed me $200. You give $200 for it? I did, for that was the price they put on the black son of a bitch that it hung inside of. He stirred about in the corner and came up with an old dark brass kettle, lifted the cover, and poked inside with one finger. The remains of the lank prairie hairs interned in cold grease and furred with a light blue mold. So that's kind of the end of the uncomfortable part. Um, that's, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, a man who hates somebody so much, he <laughs> hates a whole group of people so much that uh, he carries around um, the heart of a man, a black man, and uh, uses it as a token for his hatred. Uh, that was hard to read. That was especially hard to read on a mic, knowing that this is going to go on the internet. 
and I think it's important to put that out um, because that's what the book is supposed to do. That's that's what the book is supposed to do, and that's the first significant uh, part of it making you uncomfortable, and it surely did for me. <laughs> surely made me uncomfortable reading it. Um, this man is not worth living. I mean, he's not. Uh, we all know this. We all know that uh, at this stage um, in the world that people that actually feel like this and people that hold this level of hate in their heart um, don't have a place here. Uh, people that irrationally hate a whole other group of people um, don't belong on the world. Uh, they're not good for the world. That's what this whole book is about. Um it's uncomfortable. And then again, I'm going to show you how quickly uh, it turns, not turns around, but how quickly he says something and you're like, oh damn, that's, that's kind of smart. The old man swung his head back and forth. The way of the transgressor is hard. God made this world, but he didn't make it to suit everybody, did he? I don't believe he much had me in mind. I said the old man, but where does a man come by his notions? What worlds he's seen that he liked better. I can think of better places and better ways. Can you make it better? No. No, it's a mystery. At a man at a man's at odds to know his mind, because his mind is aught he has to know it with. He can know his heart, but he don't want to. Rightly so. Best not to look in there. It ain't the heart of a creature that is bound in the way that God has set for it. You can find meanness in the least of creatures. But when God made the devil, when God made man, the devil was at his elbow. A creature that can do anything, make a machine, and a machine to make the machine. An evil that can run itself a thousand years. No need to tend it. You believe that? I don't know. Believe that. Uh, that's deep. And he says, the way of the transgressor is hard. God made this world, but he didn't make it to suit everybody, did he? Uh, he's talking about a transgressor as somebody that just breaks rules, breaks societal norms. Um, for example, the left is transgressing right now, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, in the world today. They're, they are the transgressors because they're breaking uh, long-known societal rules and norms. Um, it's just so ironic, and I don't know what to make of this. The fact that he just handed uh, the kid um, the dried-up, shriveled heart of a black man that he hung, um, and then he starts talking about the heart of a man. <laughs> like, I don't know what to think about that. I just think it's important to relay um, the uncomfortableness uh, of the situation. And then you're forced to look at, in this fictional character, you're forced to look at this paragraph and go, what is this guy actually saying here? You're, you're trying to give him credit, even though you just read one of the most, if you're like, depending on how much you've read, you've just read probably some of the most vile literature that you ever have. Uh, and now you're forced to look at this man and go, what, what is he trying to say here? Does he have a valid point? Um, it's just a wild dichotomy. And that's why I think it's so important to display that on page 20, <laughs> on page 19 and 20, you're already forced to do this. Uh, what does this mean? He says, no, it's a mystery. A man's at odds to know his mind because his mind is ought he has to know it with. What he's saying is how can you understand the thing that you're using to understand? You can't, that's circular, circular logic. You know, you can't use the mind to understand the mind. It's, it's, now that I think about it, it's it's kind of the problem with AI. It's like, um, can't use AI to, to figure out more AI. 
That's 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 not a good plan. Circular logic. It's just going to serve itself. It's going to it's going to come up with whatever it wants to. Uh, government. This is why we have checks and balances in the government. He says you can't know your mind because it's all you have to know it with. Um, he says he can know his heart, but he don't want to. Rightly so. Best not to look in there. It ain't the heart of a creature that is bound in the way that God has set for it. Uh, I don't know what he's saying there. I don't, uh, other than the fact that he's saying he can know his heart, but he don't want to. He's saying that men know that they are that they are evil, I think is what he's saying. That men know that they're evil. Uh, he doesn't want, you don't want to know that about yourself. You don't want to know that you have this deep evil uh, inside of yourself. Uh, every one of us do. I think it's, I don't know if that's what uh, ultimate depravity is like in, in Christianity. Um, I don't know if that has any correlation, but... Uh, he just says, best not to look in there. It ain't the heart of a creature that is bound in the way that God has set for it. Uh, I don't know what that means. I don't, and I searched a lot to try to figure out what that means. I don't really know what he's saying, that um, it ain't the heart of a creature that is bound in the way that God has set for it. Um, he says, you can find meanness in the least of creatures, but when God made the de- when God made man, the devil was at his elbow. A creature that can do anything make a machine and a machine to make the machine an evil that can run itself a thousand years no need to tend it you believe that yeah i don't know what's really being said here and i promise guys i tried uh really hard to come up with oh this is what this paragraph means um and that's part of what i kind of talked about is that uh, this book just gives so many open-ended questions that now i have to carry with me and try to answer throughout the rest of my life. And I think that that's, that's what it's designed to do, I really think. Um, and again, it's just kind of mind-blowing that 20 pages in, we're already doing that. Um, later on, the hermit uh, ends up being nothing. He just goes away, which is what typically happens in this book. Uh, the more I review it, the more mad I just get at the book, which I think is a sign that it's it's super good literature because it just irritates the shit out of me because the hermit just leaves. Uh, he, well, he doesn't just leave, but uh, the kid watched the fire. Already he was nodding. Finally raised, shook his head. The hermit watched him. Oh, he says, just go on and fix your bed. Uh, let's see. Oh, he woke sometime in, uh, in the night with the hut in almost total darkness and the hermit bent over him and all but in his bed what do you want he said but the hermit crawled away and in the morning he woke the hut was empty and he got his things and left it just ends like that that's all that happens of the hermit um literally (laughs) goes i mean in a matter of three pages it goes from showing you a black man's heart and saying some of the most evil shit that you've probably ever heard uh, which is not even close to some of the evil shit that you'll read in the in the rest of this book uh to just leaving just leaving and nothing um, just so many open-ended questions that uh, I don't even know how to answer. And I think that that's what you're going to find in this book. And I think it's good. I think you need to look deep and try to find an answer for these questions and understand why you're questioning these things. Again, I just, I, I'm just in awe at the fact that you can read something on the first page that is as evil on the first page, on 19, that is as evil as that. A black man's heart um, dried and shriveled up. Uh, that cost him $200. You can read something evil like that, and then the next page, we can find a whole paragraph of this fictional character uh, that has said something profound. What does that mean? I don't know. You tell me. Um, You tell me, as this gets kicked off of Spotify. Um, (laughs) uh, Later on, page 26, 
we uh the kid makes his first kill which i think is pretty uh is pretty interesting um one thing that i'm i'm going to be interested to try to answer and as you read this book i haven't thought about it yet until i just turned to this page is i I know the kill the kid has a sense for mindless violence i wonder how much of his violence is is really mindless i'm going to look through the rest of this book and find all of the kills that the kid makes and see how many of them were just completely baseless because and i'll and i'll tell you why here in a second uh, see if all of these kills were just completely baseless with, with nothing, um, with no, nothing to provoke him, uh, no reasoning. I mean, we're talking about the time, uh, where you could literally kill somebody over a card game and it was like debatable whether it was legal or not. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, well, he cheated me and everybody's like, oh, well, I mean, if he cheated, he kind of deserves to die. Um, a lot of the kids kills, I think are like that. To where, um, yeah, it's mindless violence. It, it sucks. Uh, shouldn't be killing people over card games, but that's the way it was back then. To where is there's a lot of other killing in here that has no purpose whatsoever. And it, it's actually the only purpose is evil. Um, so be watching for that. That's just my thought as I open this page. But anyway, he comes into this bar. Uh, he comes into this bar and he wants a drink, but he doesn't have any way to pay for it. So he talks to the bartender and he says, what can I do to pay for this drink? Uh, this doesn't actually work by the way. Um, tried it at fuzzies the other day. You can't go do that. Uh, That's a joke. But he says, what can I do to pay for this drink? How can I work off this drink? Can I uh, sweep? The guy says, uh, the floor is not dirty. And he says, let me sweep anyway. And, uh, you give me a drink if I sweep. He thinks they have an agreement. They don't really have an agreement. And what happens is the dude doesn't give him his drink, and he ends up killing him with a uh, with a broken liquor bottle. And this is the kid's first kill. And again, I mentioned this uh, this part where I don't know how much of it is mindless because, um, you know, the dude was told in Spanish that he wants to clean for a drink, and the guy lets him clean and then doesn't give him a drink. And so the kid feels like he's been cheated. Uh, in those days, you could kill a man for less, and he does. Uh, in pretty drastic fashion, and this is how the filibusters that you'll you'll find Captain White and the uh, the filibusters. This is how they hear about him, uh, and then they recruit him and bring him on as a uh, a filibuster. So I'm gonna skip over a lot of that and jump right into chapter four. Um, this is where. Uh, so I know we talked about just kind of the evilness uh, on page 19 uh, with the man in the blackened heart. Uh, this is where the awesome—I I say awesome, not in a in a sense of good, but in awe, like the sense of awe-inspiring. You know, this is not oh, my wife brought home cookies. That's awesome. This is—you have no other word for it because you're in awe. Uh, this is where McCarthy introduces his awesome um, descriptions of violence, just absolutely breathtaking descriptions of violence uh, that continue on to this book so we're, we're talking about the evil of a man's heart and then also just the great amounts of violence uh, that occurred at this time uh, between the Indians and he calls them the Saxons but the Indians and the whites in the time so basically they're riding down into Mexico they made it their way into Mexico and uh, they think that they see uh, like a herd of something coming up on the plains um, and they and they do. Uh, they think it's like a band of horse thieves, and they're kind of scared because the Comanche run this land. And if you know anything about Indians, you know that the Comanche, uh, once they found the horse, became the biggest and the baddest. 
Um, I heard something the other day. I want to get an Indian expert, an Indian expert, I guess. I don't know if that's how you say it. Uh, a, a historian on Native American and American peoples uh, to come on the uh come on the podcast and give us a little bit of context about what uh, was actually going on during this time uh, with the, you know, the Indian cultures. But uh, this gives you a really good insight. Um, They say, what do you make of that captain? He says, I make it a parcel of heathen stock thieves is what I make it. What do you? So they think that this is a bunch of stock thieves when in actuality, it's a war party. If you know anything about Comanche war parties, you know, this is going to get bad. Um, I'm halfway trying to decide whether I want to read this to you, um, whether I want to read this to you and just absolutely stumble the whole way through it and not do it any justice, or um, if I'm going to let you read it for yourselves. Uh, well, the idea is that you're supposed to have already read this, and if not, um, you're probably never going to read it. So I think I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, <laughs> trigger warning. Not trigger warning, but uh, I will stumble and I will stutter. So I'm going to try to get through this. It's a, it's a couple pages long. Um, the first of the herd began to swing past them in a pile of yellow dust. Rangy, slat-tribbed cattle with horns that grew a goggle and no two alike, and small, thin mules, coal-black, that shouldered one another and reared their mallet-shaped heads above the backs of the others, and then more cattle, and finally the first of the herders riding up on the outer side and keeping the stock between themselves and the mounted company. Behind them came a herd of several hundred ponies. The sergeant looked for Candelario. Candelario, sorry. He kept backing along the ranks, but he could not find him. He nudged his horse through the column and moved up the far side. The latter most of the drovers were now coming through the dust, and the captain was gesturing and shouting. The ponies had begun to veer off from the herd, and the drovers were beating their way towards this armed company met with, met with on the plain. Already you could see through the dust on the ponies' hides, the painted chevrons, and the hands, and the rising suns, and birds, and fish of every device, like the shade of old works through sizing on a canvas. And now, too, you could hear the above, hear above the pounding of the unshod hooves, the piping of the kina flutes, made from human bones. And some among the company had begun to saw back on their mounts, and some, to mill in confusion, went up from the offside of those ponies, there rose a fabled horde of mounted lancers and archers bearing shields, bedlight with bits of broken mirror glass that cast a thousand unpieced suns against the eyes of their enemies. A legion of horribles, hundreds in number, half-naked or clad in costumes attic or biblical, or wardrobed out of a fevered dream, with skins of animals and silk finery and pieces of uniform still tracked with the blood of prior owners, coats of strang dragoons, frogged and braided cavalry jackets, one in a stovepipe hat and one with an umbrella, one in white stockings and a blood-stained wedding veil, and some in headgear of crane feathers or rawhide helmets that bore horns of bull or buffalo, and one in a pigeon-tailed coat worn backwards and otherwise naked, and one in the armor of a Spanish conquistador, the breastplate and pauldrons deeply dented with old blows of mace or saber done in another country by men whose very bones were dust, and many with their braids spliced up with the hair of other beasts until they trailed upon the ground, and the horse's ears and tails worked with bits of brightly colored cloth, and one whose horse's whole head was painted crimson red, 
and all the horsemen's faces gaudy and grotesque with daubings like a company of mounted clowns, death hilarious, all howling in a barbarous tongue and riding down upon them like a horde from a hell more horrible than yet the brimstone land of Christian reckoning, screeching and yammering on a cloth and clothed in smoke like those vaporous being beings in regions beyond right knowing where the eye wanders and the lip jerks and drools. Oh my God, said the sergeant. A rattling drove of arrows passed through the company and men tottered and dropped from their mounts. Horses were rearing and plunging and the Mongol hordes swung up along their flanks and turned and rode full upon them with lances. The company was now come to a halt and the first shots were fired, and the gray rifle smoke rolled through the dust as the lancers breached their ranks. The kid's horse sank beneath him with a long pneumatic sigh. He had already filed his rifle, and now he sat on the ground, fumbled and fumbled with his shot pouch. A man near him sat with an arrow hanging out of his neck. He was bent slightly as if in prayer. The kid would have reached for the bloody hoop iron point but then he saw that the man wore another arrow in his breast to the fletching and was dead. Everywhere there were horses down and men scrambling, and he saw a man who sat charging his rifle while blood ran from his ears, and he saw men with their revolvers disassembled, trying to fit the spare loaded cylinders they carried, and he saw men kneeling who tilted and clasped their shadows on the ground, and he saw men lanced and caught up by the hair and scalped standing. And he saw the horses of war. He saw the horses of war trample down the fallen, a little white-faced pony with one clouded eye leaned out of the murk and snapped at him like a dog and was gone. Among the wounded, some seemed dumb. Among the wounded, some seemed dumb and without understanding, and some were pale through the mask of dust, and some had fouled themselves or tottered brokenly onto the spears of the savages. None driving in a wild frieze of headlong horses with eyes walled and teeth cropped and naked riders with clusters of arrows clenched in their jaws and their shields winking in the dust and up the far side of the ruined ranks in a piping of bone flutes and dropping down off the sides of their mounts with one heel hung in the wither strap and their short bows flexing beneath the outstretched neck of the ponies until they had circled the company and cut their ranks in two and then rising up again like funhouse figures, some with nightmare faces painted on their breasts, riding down the unhorsed Saxons and spearing and clubbing them and leaping from their mounts with knives and running about the ground with a peculiar bandy-legged trot like creatures driven to alien forms of locomotion and stripping the clothes from the dead and seizing them up by the hair and passing their blades about the skulls of the living and the dead alike and snatching aloft the bloody wigs, and hacking and chopping at the naked bodies, ripping off limbs, heads, gutting the strange white torsos, and holding up great handfuls of viscera, genitals, some of the savages so slathered up with gore they might have rolled in it like dogs, and some who fell upon the dying and sodomized them with loud cries to their fellows. And now the horses of the dead came pounding out of the smoke and dust, and circled with flapping leather and wild manes and eyes, widened with fear like the eyes of the blind, and some were feathered with arrows, some lanced through and stumbling and vomiting blood as they wheeled across the killing ground and clattered from side again. 
Dust stanched the wet and naked heads of the scalps of the scalped, who with the fringe of hair below their wounds and tonsured to the bone now lay maimed and naked monks in the blood slight dust, and everywhere the dying ground groaned and gibbered, and horses lay screaming. Yeah. Um intense incredibly intense i'm actually surprised that i got through it as well as i did i I really i mean this was like my fourth take of trying to read through that without stumbling um (laughs) i wrote here when i first wrote the when i first uh wrote when i first read this the only note that i have here after that whole piece is holy shit (laughs) um i remember writing that um I, I read it. I read every word. Um, I read every word as if it meant something. And then at the end, all I had to say was, was holy shit. <laughs> it gives you a little bit of an insight into my head. Um, it's, it's just, it's just wild. Like I said, it's, it's awesome. Um, awe inspiring. Uh, the uh the descriptions of this comanche horde are incredibly accurate uh you can go into notes on blood meridian uh some of the historic journalists and historians have given depictions of comanches and he uh he covers it pretty well i'm not going to go over that you can get the book and, and look at it notes of notes on blood meridian john seepich um it's just it's significant and it goes on like this uh for a lot of people this is hard to read um it's hard for me to read out loud uh especially the uncomfortable part um that we talked about in the beginning of this episode just because i know what society thinks about uh discomfort like this um i mean even what i just read could be and probably will be eventually uh construed in one way or another but um that's what this book is good for. It really is to really make you think. And the scene that goes on in your head uh, when you're thinking about that is is kind of wild. Um, the scene that I just had in my head when I was reading it to you, uh, these painted warriors um, dressed like dressed like um, mannequins. You know what I mean? Not mannequins, but like uh, they just went into a costume room and and um, put a bunch of shit on. I mean riding on horses and just absolutely destroying this band of, of filibusters with guns. It's just awesome. The the scene that I have in my head right now, and I hope it created something like that for you as well. Um, you know, this is oftentimes used as the very section that, um, gives credit to McCarthy's ability to McCarthy's ability to, um, make you picture a certain scene and make you picture and get through something so violent, so vile, uh, this, uh, this, uh, passage right here, it's hard to pick a passage and you'll notice this. The reason that it's so hard to read this out loud is because McCarthy uses these run on paragraphs. I'm not even talking about run on sentences. I mean, in that whole thing, there may have been four periods. Um, and you'll see that if you're reading it, I don't know why he does that. Uh, frankly, it kind of pisses me off because, um, as many times as I got 
just shellacked on English papers for run-on sentences, and then the pinnacle of of English literature, the dude doesn't use a fucking period once. Um, I know that's strong language, but <laughs> it's like it's frustrating. I don't know why, and I've looked it up, and it's all literary bullshit as to like why, other than the fact that it just keeps you in in this scene. I guess maybe the the point is that the scene doesn't stop. And so that's why he doesn't use a period. Nobody's explained it like that to me, but that's the only thing that I guess kind of makes sense, but he does it all the time. I mean, he does it when it's not a violent and an awe-inspiring scene. He does it when it's the most boring of scenes uh, throughout the book. Um, he'll take he'll take <laughs> he'll take a whole three pages um, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but he'll take three pages to, uh, to describe West Texas without a period. And if you think actual West Texas is boring, uh, go read <laughs> West Texas without a period for three pages, uh, which is, uh, again, I'm exaggerating and being a little, uh, sarcastic, um, and cynical, I guess is what you could call it. But, um, but yeah, this, this, this section is just, I, I don't even know how to, how to put it into words, um, write it down, look at it, write down what this makes you feel and remember how it makes you feel. And remember that this is what, um, this is what the world was like back then. You know, a lot of people talk about, uh, how we just massacred the Indians. Um, the Indians did their own fair share of massacring in, in ways like this. Uh, now I'm not going to get into whether it was defending themselves, all that BS. I, I don't care. Um, what I care about is that the world was bloody back then. It was incredibly bloody. And, uh, you know, the Indians were not, um, an exception for that. So, well guys, I think this is going to be the end of the episode. It just goes on to where he, he goes through and, uh, there's some significant stuff that, that, uh, that, um, happens within the next five uh, chapters, five and six. He runs back into Toadvine. You didn't think he was going to do that. Um, he gets picked up by. I guess what is significant is that uh, he get he gets picked up by the Glanton gang, Glanton the Glanton gang, which is a band of a uh, band of scalp hunters uh, in Mexico. And so what's really happening? And maybe I maybe I kind of failed to describe to you the scenery of what's happening here. Um, after the Mexican American War. Uh, they were having a large problem with Indians just, I mean, completely destroying, uh, you know, villages in Mexico. And so what Mexico did is actually hired groups of mercenaries like the, the Glanton gang to go around and just brutally murder Indians and pay them for scalps. Um, if you bring a scalp back, you get a certain amount of dollars. And that's what Glanton was doing. Now, the filibusters uh, that he fell in with in the first part of it, which is kind of a weird word. Um, if you read that and you're like, I don't know what this means, um, it's very hard to actually figure out what that actual word meant back then because everything pulls up like a Congress filibuster. But really what it is is it, it's this. It's not even a military unit. Um, it's a uh, – imagine if you and the bros – uh, packed up your stuff, rented a Cessna and flew to Ukraine, which I know is not possible. That's why it's funny. But, uh, rented a Cessna and flew to Ukraine and decided that you're just going to go fuck shit up and take riches. Um, you have no place being there. You're not with Ukraine. You're not with Russia. You're not any government organization other than, uh, the government that you've made up yourself. Um, 
that's what a filibuster is. Uh, it's it's a lot of times I think the ex army guys that uh, realized how much land and riches. I say riches, how much land is down in Mexico. Uh, I guess riches is, is fair. Um, I don't know if that's what they were going to look for. I, I guess it was. Uh, how much land and riches is down in Mexico and how much fun they could have uh, killing engines and, and taking land for Mexicans, I guess. Um, so that's what they went and did. They were not sanctioned by the United States government. They were not sanctioned by the Mexican government, actually. Uh, Mexican government gave them no no contract uh, whereas the scalp hunters, the Glanton gang, did actually have a contract uh, with Mexico. So I think I think it breaks it up into states, and I'm not doing very well uh, highlighting that and the actual political history of that. I think you've got Sonora and you've got Chihuahua. Um, the state of Chihuahua licenses them, licenses them, contracts them first, and then I think the state of Sonora does. I could be wrong on that. Uh, I will do better and make sure that my history is in place for the next episode of this. Uh, I wanted to really hone in on the uh, the description in this first section, and I completely forgot to, to cover the, the history of what's going on here, and I apologize for that. Um, however, though, uh, notes on Blood Meridian, if you get this book, it goes over it a lot better than what I probably can. So buy that book and read it if you're really interested in this book. So, guys, I think that that's all I've got for you uh, for this first section. Please stay with me. Please stay and read the book. Um, there's so much more uh, to gain from here besides what I've, I've already mentioned in this first this first section, chapters one through six. Um, it's uh, it's intense. And I think that's all I have to say about it. Uh, come back on Sunday. We're going to do an episode with Clint Walker. Uh, I'm super, super excited about that. We've already recorded it, and it's going to release. Uh, Clint is the uh, he started Nemo Arms, and then he went and made Falcor. Uh, he's got a bunch of marketing companies. He's a super, super smart guy, um, super effective dude, high performance type of guy, uh, has made tons of money over his lifetime and he drops a lot of good wisdom for us there. So tune in on Sunday for that. I was so glad to have him on, uh, on the podcast and it's going to be a really, really good conversation. Uh, keep tuning into these book club episodes. I really think that, um, the, uh, the, the guest series is good and, uh, that's where my bread is going to be buttered, I think, uh, is in the guest series. But I also think that this uh, this book club is, is incredibly important. And understanding literature um, is going to become increasingly more important for young men as we, uh, as we kind of start to forget our history. And I don't want to get too deep, but I think that we're in that period of time where um, societies forget their history. And... Uh, forget what created them, uh, forget how people thought back in the day and start to repeat the same mistakes that people made back in the day. Uh, and I think that's why a novel like this, that is, it's historical fiction. It's, it's a made up story, uh, that if it had happened would be historically accurate. Um, and so reading something like this really gives you an insight into what, uh, what was happening back then and, uh, gives you a lot of questions to answer on how you feel about it. So thanks guys. Really appreciate it. We'll see you on Sunday.